Welcome to The Good Life. I'm your host, Sean Murray. Today's topic is Claude Shannon, a mathematician and engineer known as the father of information theory for his landmark paper, A Mathematical Theory of Communication, which he published in 1948. Shannon's seminal work and discoveries ushered in the digital age, and for that alone, his life is worthy of study. But Shannon also had this other remarkable quality to his life. He had a very playful and creative mind. He was always curious, and he devoted his considerable intellect to a diverse range of activities and interests that included juggling, unicycles, artificial intelligence, chess playing machines, wearable computers. He even built a chairlift on his property. He was both a mathematical and creative genius. My guests today are Jimmy Sony and Mark Levinson. Jimmy co-authored a biography of Shannon called A Mind at Play, and Mark directed a documentary about Shannon's life called Bit Player, which is available on Amazon Prime. They both seek to explore this incredible mind of Claude Shannon. And in this episode, we look to distill the secrets to Shannon's creativity, and we talk about how we can apply these lessons to our own lives to grow and foster our own creativity and innovation. Get ready for the outrageous and mind-blowing world of Claude Shannon. You're listening to The Good Life on the Real-Time Podcast Network, where we explore the ideas, principles, and habits that help you live a meaningful, flourishing life. Join your host, Sean Murray, on a journey for the life well lived. Jimmy Sony and Mark Levinson, welcome to The Good Life. Great to be here. Yeah, thank you for having us. Well, it's a real honor, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. The topic today is Claude Shannon a truly remarkable person who made incredible discoveries. He's known as the father of information theory, which I hope we'll get into a little bit. But what also makes Shannon really interesting and worthy of study is his active and playful mind and his childlike curiosity for learning and inventing and connecting ideas. And I hope as we study Shannon today, we can draw some lessons and perhaps even apply them to our own lives in a way that pushes us to be more curious and playful. Jimmy, you co-authored a book about Shannon called A Mind at Play with Rob Goodman. It was a really fun read, delightful. You get to know Shannon quite a bit. And then, Mark, you created a documentary, Bit Player, which looks at Shannon through a more visual lens, which is also excellent. And they complement each other both. So if someone's listening and you want to dig into Shannon's life, two great resources Uh, But I thought we'd start with a little background and context on who Shannon was and why he's worthy of of study today and why we remember him. Jimmy, do you want to start? Sure. It probably helps to walk your listeners through how I even got to Shannon. I'm not an electrical engineer. I'm not a mathematician, but I spent five years learning about the life of this electrical engineer and mathematician. And I was reading a really wonderful book called The Idea Factory, which was a pretty deep look at Bell Laboratories. And if you can imagine Facebook, Google, and Apple decide they're going to form one super company, and it's going to be almost entirely underwritten by the US government, that's Bell Labs for a lot of the 20th century. They won six Nobel Prizes. They invented the transistor. I'm sorry, researchers there won six Nobel Prizes, invented the transistor, They made improvements to the bazooka. They invented touchstone dialing. They did it all. And in that book, 
I learned about Claude Shannon, who worked at Bell Labs. And honestly, and this has been true for every book project I've ever done, my kind of market research is I just go to Amazon to see if someone's written a biography or written whatever it is I want to read. Now, most of the time, someone's already done the project, so I just buy the book and read it. In this case, I noticed that no one had really done a kind of end-to-end look at Claude Shannon's life. There had been books about information as a concept, a really wonderful book called The Information by James Glick. There had been obviously this book about Bell Labs, but I started thinking like this person, Claude Shannon, so interesting. And I just sort of dove in and, and pitched to my editors at Simon & Schuster the idea that his life deserved a broader look. And to give your readers a little bit of background, if they're listening to this podcast and they downloaded this file through iTunes and they're able to do it on a phone while simultaneously sending a message and also you know, taking a photo and making sure that all of that doesn't take years of time to download, the process by which that happens is due to work that Claude Shannon did decades ago in our understanding of information and how it's transmitted. And that's his big innovation. And, you know, he's not a household name the way that Steve Jobs or Bill Gates are, but the work that he did provides the underpinning for the digital age. And in addition to that, he turns out to be this remarkably fertile, fun, inventive mind. Many of your readers have probably read or heard of Richard Feynman. We saw a kind of Richard Feynman quality in Shannon. He was a chess player. He built all kinds of crazy machines. He made a flamethrowing trumpet. He was inventive. He played in addition to being this very rigorous theoretical mind. And so all of that is what led me to him. And you know, hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about some of that in, in depth. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Mark, how did you get involved with Shannon? What drew you in? For me, I had actually just recently finished a film, a documentary called Particle Fever, which was about the discovery of Higgs boson at this enormous experiment outside of Geneva. And so it was actually my first documentary, but suddenly I was seen as somebody who could do films about scientific ideas and, and people. And so a friend of mine, Sergio Verdoux, suggested that I make a film about Claude Shannon. And honestly, I, I, I fully admit I didn't know who Claude Shannon was. And so I started to read and, you know, quickly discovered the same things that, that, that Jimmy was talking about. It's just like, how could I not know about this person? I mean, it was astonishing because I actually asked some of the people, some of my physicist friends, and very few of them knew, actually. Which is interesting because, I mean, we may get into this later, but he, his ideas are actually now having a, a real importance in some, some of the most you know, esoteric and profound areas of physics. So I began to read about him, and it was amazing. I came from a narrative film background. Well, I, I started as a physicist, but then I was working in narrative films, and so I wasn't really interested in doing a biopic, essentially. But like Jimmy... What I found was fascinating about him was some of the, the personal sides, the playful side. It's interesting, both of us figured out a way to get play into our titles. <laughs> uh, that was really interesting to me. And I thought that it could be interesting to try to present this, that as much as I wanted to explain what he did, I wanted to try and talk about uh, how he did it. And so I actually came up with this idea of 
could I make a film that showed that? And at a certain point, I came across these interviews. The IEEE had done an interview with him in the 80s, and they had somebody go up to his house, which was this incredible mansion up um, outside of Cambridge in Winchester, Massachusetts. And the interviewer, he was really more of a, an engineer, really wanted to ask about some of the ideas, how he had come up with certain ideas. But Shannon was surrounded by all these toys, basically, these devices he made. And he kept wanting to jump up and show them these things. And, and, and so that, to me, was just like, wow, this is so amazing. You really you got a sense of him as a person. The, the transcripts were incredibly literal. I mean, indicating everywhere he laughed, when his wife came in and said something. And it was just such an incredible depiction of this person. And so I I sort of thought, well, maybe I had this transcript the interview. And so uh, the idea was, could I recreate that, you know, really get a sense of it? And that got me very excited. I mean, again, I, I, I don't think I would have just done a traditional documentary, but the idea of being able to show him was what I really was attracted to. And amazingly, the family still owned the house. And although it was mostly empty, we were able to reassemble it and, and create it. And so that really became a great motivating force to be able to bring this through. And, you know, interestingly, I mean, Jimmy and I met early on in this process. I think we first went to Bell Labs together, didn't we? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and we quickly realized that we were complementary, that we were, in a sense, we were engineering a book and film coming out at the same time. Both of us thought it would be a year or so earlier than it did, but um, we did actually end up really uh, integrating. And, and, you know, Jimmy ended up being a great character in my film as well. <laughs> and likewise, you know, I would, I would say that usually I'm partial to the book over the movie, but if your listeners, who I assume are busy, particularly mid, you know, everything that's going on, the movie's better than the book. Check out Mark's work. And I should also credit Mark with one of the funnier moments, you know, sort of spoiler alert moments about the book was Mark led us to a piece of paper we somehow missed in our research, which is uh, Claude Shannon had a bit of a sense of humor and he wrote out his own funeral plan. And it was this sort of epic parade funeral. There'd be multiple floats. And on one of the floats, two people would be playing chess and then there would be jugglers and then there would be unicyclists. And then there's all kinds of other things going on. You know, in looking all the, at all the boxes in the Library of Congress, we had somehow overlooked this. And Mark pointed us in the direction of that piece of paper right before we went to print. So we rewrote our conclusion around that moment, around that little bit of macabre humor. Uh, so I always credit Mark with helping us kind of conclude the book because that's the most the most fitting way to end it is the way Claude Shannon would have intended. Well, that's just a great demonstration of what really drew me to Shannon, I think will draw most people, which is this incredibly curious person who was willing to try things. And he's the opposite of the sort of staid scientist, always serious about study. He just seemed like he was able to capture that childlike curiosity and continue to tap into it throughout his life. Mark, I want to go back to that basement or whatever room that was in his house that I think, Jimmy, in your book, you call it the ultimate gadget gadget factory or something like that. Because I was fascinated by these things that he would build. In your movie, you in the documentary, you show us some of these items. Can you talk about a few? And were those the, the actual items that he built that you showed in the movie? 
Most of them were. So in the upstairs room, which was, you know, this addition that he had built on, that he had, had built onto the house to enclose all these things, those were all his real devices. And again, I said we were incredibly aided by the assistance of Shannon family, I mean, Peggy and Andrew. I mean, Andrew, his son, had a lot of the devices, was very involved in it. And so he actually had a lot of them at his house. Some of the really important pieces were at the MIT Museum, and they were very generous in letting us get those as well. Pretty much everything you see up there, you know, his throwback machine, which was his Roman numeral calculator, which, you know, when you just say that Roman numeral calculator, yeah, okay. And then when you think about what what is that? I mean, you know, punching in Roman numerals and it does a calculation. And he even joked that, you know, it wasn't the most practical device, but he liked, thought it was a, a cool thing to make. The maze that he made for the mouse. So he, he really invented, you know, it has to be one of the earliest artificial intelligence devices, which was a, a little mouse that could find its way through a maze. And that's the real maze and one of the real mouse mice that he invented. All of his juggling things, pretty much everything you see upstairs is, are the real things. The ultimate machine, which is what you referred to downstairs, was the one thing that um, doesn't exist anymore. For those in the audience, it's a small box. It looks like a coffin for a doll. And when you flip the switch, it, the coffin opens up and this hand or arm comes out and turns itself off and the coffin closes. And that was the premise, I guess, that Minsky threw out there. Can we build a machine that turns itself off? Wasn't that the, 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 just the kind of the playful idea that he threw out there? Yeah, it's the ultimate machine. What it has one purpose only to turn itself off. <laughs> There's zillions of them. If you look at on on the internet, if you look for an ultimate machine, endless machine, most useless machine, there's many many iterations of what people call it. There's uh, tons of them. There's iterations where like you know one you know two hands juggle back. You know, I mean, turn each other off, and you know all and, uh, uh, something that blows out a candle, and then the other one lights it and blows it. But this, I think, was the original, and it was from what we've heard. It was actually something that Marvin Minsky either proposed or came out of their discussion. I think Minsky was visiting at Bell Labs when Shannon was there one summer, and suggested you know that came up with this idea of something. And then Shannon, you know, being the engineer he is, uh, went off and built it. I think, Jimmy, you say somewhere in the book, you quote Shannon, you know, along this line of there was no practical use for a lot of these things that he did. He said something like, yeah, I always followed my passion. I never let practicality sort of get out of the way. I'm I'm paraphrasing. Uh, But he said also something like, often these things give me insights into really important areas of study, and they have led to discoveries. Yeah, it's one of the most critical lessons that I took in studying Shannon's life was the willingness to let his intellect roam and to kind of pursue curiosities, but in a way that took it to the next step, right? Sort of like he'd have a question or an idea And then Shannon's instinct, which by the way, like I don't live this way, so it was great to learn about it, was, well, what happens if I do the next thing and the next thing and the next thing? So I can give one one example of that was he was meeting with a young graduate student whose name was Ed Thorpe. And there's some people in your audience, particularly investors who might know Ed Thorpe as an investor. Well, at the time he was a graduate student. And he came in and he had some paper he was submitting to the National Academy and I guess 
Shannon was a member. So there was some like kind of make, you know, sort of making sure that this passes the smell test. And when they were done talking about that stuff, Shannon says, what else are you working on? And he said, well, I've been, you know, tooling around with some things around gambling and about how to make a wearable device that you could use to beat the casinos at roulette. And like Shannon right away lit up. And my understanding in having spoken to Ed, Dr. Thorpe is what followed was basically Ed Thorpe moved into the Shannon house for a period and they built this machine just I by some reckoning it's the world's first wearable computer. So the ancestor to, you know, the uh, Apple watch and they took it to casinos and they used it to beat casinos at roulette. And so, you know, there's a kind of quality in which a graduate student sitting in a professor's office mentions something offhandedly that he's working on. It's not the case. I think that everyone then says, well, you got to move in and we're going to buy a roulette table and we're going to work on this. And I'm going to spend months of my time in a workshop refining this device to get it perfect. And then we're going to go to the casinos. We're gonna... There was a way in which even a simple bit of curiosity would lead Shannon down to, and, and what the result was something he would create. You know, there was another less consequential example, which is I think his son had to perform once and Mark may know this story better than I do, but his son had to perform once and he played the trumpet and Shannon, I guess, just posed the question, like, what if the trumpet could breathe fire while you were performing? And so then, and I may let Mark take the story from here because he actually features this in the film. There was a, a talent competition. Andrew was going to enter a, a talent show and he did play the trumpet. And apparently just Claude came up to him once and said, well, do you think it would make an impact if you, uh, if you had a flaming trumpet? And, uh, you know, Andrew was like, yeah, I guess that would make an impact. And, uh, you know, not knowing what that even meant. And Claude went downstairs and the next morning he came up with a flaming trumpet. And that's what uh, Andrew performed with to win the competition. I would say that the, the two lessons I took from a number of these curiosities, right? Because like you could think that this person is just like a dilettante, like they go around and just sort of like they're an inch deep and a mile wide. But the interesting thing, thing about Shannon is he's also the person who spent 10 years working on information theory and developing and refining the concepts that create these two papers that basically birth an entire field. And so he's not a lightweight by any stretch. The, the things that I took from the from the endeavors that were more playful, like the flaming trumpet or this rocket-powered Frisbee or this you know chairlift that he had that took him down to the lake at the edge of his property was one, there's value in, in sort of extending your curiosity in like, if you have a crazy question, sort of seeing how far you can take it. And I will be honest that the person I see do this most is my five-year-old, right? Where like, there's nothing silly about a question that she asks and she'll push something silly way past the point where my like adult mind might, which is really interesting to see. Like, oh, I think all parents experience a version of this. The second thing I took from a lot of these experiments was the value in working with your hands and in being in having this practical part of engineering. And I think this is more important for contemporary people than it was even in Shannon's day, because I spend all my time behind a screen or, you know, on a phone. I'll admit like my, you know, I, I haven't exactly like gone out and set up a wood shop or anything at the end of writing this book, but it did make me more conscious of moments when I was like cooking or doing something, right? Something with my hands where there was an input and then there was an output. And I think one of the things that I learned from particularly Shannon's later years was just how productive he was with his hands, which is not something that you regularly associate with somebody who's also writing, you know, defining 
papers about information theory. But I think it's something that the more I pay attention to more, the more I look for it, the more I realize that a lot of the creative, most creative people in my life are people who have this other thing that they're they're also working with their hands. And, and maybe somebody smarter than me has done the connection there. But I do think there's a connection between handwork and headwork. So this idea of asking good questions and then prototyping or having some sort of ability to build things. And I got the sense in reading your book, Jimmy, that his colleagues, Shannon's colleagues, sort of looked at some of these activities like, what are you doing? You're the father of information theory. You you birthed this whole industry and you've got this incredible mind, yet you're working in your workshop. And that didn't seem to bother Shannon at all. And he was just following the way his mind worked and did the things he wanted to do to create and to explore. And I, and I love that. Yeah, I mean, I think we have to emphasize how unique it was that he had such mathematical abilities, but also the engineering skills. You know, engineers have to have some mathematical abilities, but he really had deep math skills, even as an undergraduate, got a dual degree in mathematics and engineering. But he applied the two very much. This is something a lot of people have talked about this, but all children are natural scientists and curious. What we see is that that gets diminished somehow as we get older and have other responsibilities. Shannon never lost that childlike curiosity. I mean, I think that to me is the essence of Shannon, that he he was playful as a child. He was making, you know, like a, a homemade little telegraph system along the fence and elevators in the barn and things like that. And he was playful later on when he was making his mouse and he was making juggling machines and things like that. His entire life was guided by curiosity. Now, as Jimmy said, there was a period of time when he was intensely, intensely focused on working on his new theory. And I think he was not building things at that time. There was certainly that period of time through, probably through graduate school. I mean, he had an early marriage that, that then fell apart. And I think he became really obsessed with his work. Behind that was this, this playfulness still that, I mean, it is interesting to think about how that I think was suppressed for a while. And maybe it was the great success he had that allowed him to do that. I mean, no doubt he had a certain freedom after his big paper that allowed him to do these things. But I think it really was always there. I wanted to add a comment onto what you said, because I think it's important your your comment about his colleague kind of looked at him a little funny for his particular these enthusiasms, you know, for the unicycling in the halls of Bell Labs and juggling and all of these things that seem like they're either circus tricks or stuff the kids play with. And I do think that it's a remarkable thing that he was one of the most famous scientists of his era, or rather he could have been. He was featured on all the kind of big scientist lists along with more famous scientists. And he actually didn't care. Like he went in the opposite direction it, and ridicule didn't bother him. Something that might be characterized as like a lack of sophistication didn't, it didn't, none of this phased him. He did what he wanted to do. I think that's harder than ever for people. I think, but it's also more powerful than ever, right? It's like a superpower now, if you're willing to endure that, to be silly and you know, ex-Bell Labs, MIT professor, giant in your field. You've won every award you can win. Lyndon Johnson gives you the National Medal of Science and you're off tooling around on a miniature unicycle that you built just because you wanted to build a miniature unicycle. 
you could see how one that would make him an object of ridicule, which I think he was in some circles, but he just didn't care. And that I found that part impressive. I think I find it more impressive now, even than when I, when we did the book a few years ago, that this was somebody who was somewhat immune to the judgments of other people. And boy, like, wouldn't we all like a little bit of that? Yeah, I think you're right. That has an impact or it features into his creativity. I think we are stifled by this feeling that, well, if I do this, what are people going to think? I've got to be doing something that is going to win the praise of my colleagues or whatever. Our minds kind of go off in these directions. And we are blocking off some paths of potential innovation, creativity that he just seemed to be able to go down. Another interesting aspect of that is that by all accounts, he was very shy. His family emphasized that. And, you know, I mean, some people read this as standoffish or he was not somebody who really collaborated. I mean, he at Bell Labs, after he rode down the hall with his unicycle juggling, he would close his door. And that was very unusual at Bell Labs. The Bell Labs almost had a policy of open door policy that, you know, everybody would go down and, and collaborate and talk and see... And he really uh, usually closed his door. What people said is if you knocked on his door, he was very genial and he'd invite you in and he'd talk. But his natural predilection was for having the door closed. And I think it was a reflection of his uh, of a shyness. But what is really interesting is it his shyness did not come from insecurity. And he was also very self-confident. And I think it's something I think Jimmy mentioned too, that he really didn't care. He knew he was right. There's a there's a, a line in the film, which, you know, most of the film, most of the lines that I have Shannon say are, are his real lines, where somebody asks about the fact that one part of his theory didn't seem to be panning out practically. And he said, well, I know what I did was right. And, you know, maybe it'll take some people a little longer to, to figure it out. <laughs> so, he had both. Uh, I think that's unusual. I usually think of people as a shyness coming from insecurity, and it was it was definitely not the case with him. Yeah, that's a really good point. I too was struck by this ability to grasp math and theories from a fundamental, intuitive, feeling perspective, where most mathematicians work it out through the equations and are very logical. Where he seemed to make these giant leaps with his intuition. He just thought a little differently than a lot of mathematicians, and maybe because of that, he was able to go further. Jimmy, you wrote, I think, an article about that paper. He had his ideas about creative thought, so he had certain principles. I don't know. You may want to talk about that. Yeah, it, it's actually a pretty remarkable thing. So he does, he's not especially keen to give sort of talks about thinking, but at one point he's kind of forced to. And what emerges is a speech called creative thinking. And he kind of lays out a number of principles for how you come up with new insights, sort of six different principles. And I can, you know, send it to you all and you can put it in the show notes. But he has a number of things to get back to the to the your original thought, though. There is this quality that he shares with Einstein where Shannon actually, according to what the reporting we found in some of the writing that he did, he was actually pretty bad at math, just like basic math. He would have to write out even like kind of basic uh, multiplication and division, but he w had a real feel for problems. He could see the end state and then work backwards to find the math. And what was interesting, if I remember correctly, was when the information theory paper was first published, 
Mathematicians accused him of being insufficiently rigorous and engineers accused him of being too rigorous. So he felt like he had hit this sweet spot. I've read about Einstein. I'm not an expert or anything, but there's this, he said that he would visualize the answers to problems, right? And so there was this scene of him like riding a sunbeam or like a beam of light, like somebody, a human being riding on it and helped him come up with some. Shannon had that quality that he would get his mind around an answer and then work out the math later. And actually, one of the interesting things about this is that his wife is one of his foremost collaborators, and she's the one filling in a lot of the intervening details. It's interesting. I'm not sure that we treat intuition as seriously as we ought to, right? I think we think of it as like a a woo-woo thing, right? For lack of a better expression. But there is something to be said for that. And I'm not it doesn't take anything away from the rigor of Shannon's work to say that he was feeling his way through some problems. I find it to be one of the most interesting things about him and probably something that like all of us, particularly like logical people could stand to do a little bit more of. I mean, the thing everybody talks about is his ability to simplify the problem, to see to the essence of it. And so again, what is that relationship to intuition? I mean, Bob Gallagher, who was you know, work with him when he went to MIT has a great story about when he first went up to him to talk to him about a problem. And Bob says that he was, he was, he was very shy. He was sort of intimidated. This was after Shannon had already done his monumental work on information theory. And he had a problem though, that he really thought Shannon would be interested in. So he very tentatively knocked on the door. Shannon came in and Bob is explaining it to him. He says, Shannon looks like he's a little confused. And then he says, let's simplify it. And, and you know, Bob's thought was, really? You, you know, this is too much for you? So he starts simplifying it. And then he simplifies it more. And he starts taking things out. And he reduces it to what Bob thought was just a trivial problem. And he thought, this is, is this the level of what you can solve? And he did solve it. And then he starts putting back elements. And he starts adding them back and adding them back and proving it at each level. And in the end, he had proved the whole thing. It was, you know, as Bob said, it was such a revelation of how to approach a problem. I think that's where, was it intuition? Was it insight? He could see the core thing that needed to be solved. And then he could work it out and, and not be distracted by all the complexities and see what was the complexities and what was the core. And that was the key. Yeah, I think that is just a great skill that he had. And you can see it in the information theory. When you look at the 1948 paper, he was studying communication. And he said to himself, well, what's the most basic form of communication? What's the most basic message you could send? And it's yes or no, or zero or one. And he gets down to that digit level and starts to build his theory off of that. And lo and behold, that's where the whole key of communication lies, is down at that level. And that's why we have zeros and ones today. And there's a great story of where the word bit came from too, right around that time. You want to tell that one, Jimmy? He he basically, um, it was his colleague, I think John Tukey, uh, they're debating what this fundamental unit of of information should be. And they had wrestled with basically the, the, the two words were binary digit. And so they thought about bigot and they thought about a couple of other B-I-G-I-T. They thought, you know, and John Tukey said, you know, you should call it a bit. Nobody knows what it means anyway. And so I may have gotten that not quite right, but it was basically that, that it was like, it's, it's abstruse. And so it's worth it. 
there's something about the 1948 paper that I always found interesting. Shannon is working on it while he is working at Bell Laboratories, and it's a pretty hard period of his life. He had gone through, as, as Mark said, a kind of rough starter marriage. He was trying to do something for the war effort, but didn't want to go to combat. He's working on problems at Bell Laboratories relating to the war effort that he doesn't think are particularly interesting or rigorous, which, by the way, doesn't is a, a lot of mathematicians worked at Bell Labs and a lot of mathematicians shared that opinion that the math was kind of uh, small ball math. But mornings, nights, weekends, he's in a small apartment in the West Village puzzling over the foundations of information. And he's looking at and trying to understand people who had come before him and who had puzzled over the science of information. And so it would be one thing, I think, if Shannon were an MIT professor and had, you know, 12 hours a day, five days a week to simply like puzzle. But he was doing this to some degree sort of in the off hours. And his contemporaries recall him kind of like scribbling on napkins and all kinds of stuff. Rob and I, at one point, I think when we were writing the book, we maybe even said this in another context, we said, well, this was like the most consequential side hustle ever because he basically writes these two papers for the Bell Systems Technical Journal that define an entire field, ask all the pertinent questions in the field, provide some answers, and then lead others to, you know, down the roads that they need to go. And it arrives without him ever saying, really saying much of a word of it to anybody else. There's countless lessons there. But I think part of it is just how that decade is, I think, the decade in which this endurance was also part of who he was. The ability to stick with these concepts for 10 years. I mean, I, I can barely stick with something for 10 minutes, you know, I mean, in the sense that like one ought to appreciate that Shannon didn't dream this up overnight. It wasn't an apple that hit him on the tree. It was almost a decade of thinking about this question of working at Bell Laboratories, which was one of the leading companies of the day and was involved in all elements of telecommunications. And so I, I just think that there is also this part, I don't want Shannon to come off to your listeners like just a guy who flew from problem to problem. During that period, this is this is a full decade to spend thinking about what people call sort of the Magna Carta of the information age. That's a great story. And it reminds me, going back to your comparison of Einstein, because Einstein was working as a patent clerk in Bern. He was doing practical work, thinking about trains going from city to city and time. And Walter Isaacson has a great biography of Einstein. And he talks about how thinking about those problems, and he had to simplify them, like Shannon does, got to relativity. And as you were talking about Shannon at Bell Laboratories, he most likely was working on codes at that time because of the war effort and Bell being a telephone company and communications. And coding and decoding becomes this important part of the theory. And my theory is it's that fact that he was working on that stuff during the day, the, the practical challenge of sending a secret message, a coded message during the war that the Germans or the Japanese couldn't read that led him to eventually get to this incredible theory. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, we know it's true. He said it himself. I mean, I think one has to distinguish. There were two things he was that happened at Bell Labs. Initially, he was working on projectile firing systems, so calculating trajectories. That's what he really didn't like. 
He was bored by it. He didn't, you know, he wasn't interested in it. When he started to work on cryptography, that actually did become interesting to him because of exactly what you've said, that he saw the question of how to uh, make a message completely unintelligible as the other side, a flip coin, if you will, flip coin of how do you make it perfectly intelligible? You know, this is something that people pushed him on to try to define which came first. And he, he has said they, they didn't come first, they were really together. I mean, I was thinking about a lot of these issues together and he did write a cryptography paper that was monumental. And it's interesting, one of the things I've found is that there were sort of three big things that Shannon did. He was really the first to actually figure out that you could use Boolean algebra for circuit design, and, you know, sort of mapping physical circuit design with mathematics, that you could apply mathematics to that problem, moving it from being just a sort of an art to a real science. And then he did cryptography and then the information theory. I find that people who are computer people often know about his uh, master. It was his master's thesis where he actually really invented this design, you know, the idea of using Boolean algebra for circuit design. People who are in cryptography know about his cryptography work and information theorists know about his information work. And I've often found that they don't know the other part of it. And in, in the cryptography field, he wrote what people consider the fundamental paper defining theoretical cryptography. Now, in the, at the time during the war, people didn't appreciate it as much because they wanted to break the codes. And so, you know, and he wasn't interested in just breaking a code. What he wanted to do was study the theoretical basis of what makes a code completely unbreakable or, you know, what, how much information do you need to break a code? So that part of it was very instrumental. I mean, very influential and, and interconnected with his information theory work. Yeah, and it gets to this ability to be in the physical world, you know, solving problems like cryptography and then writing a paper on theory reminds me a little bit of you know, having a, a question about can we theoretically beat the casino and then going off to his workshop and building a machine that actually does. And and I'm glad you brought up that story of Ed Thorpe because that's how I originally came across Shannon. I think when I read the book, The Innovators by Walter Isaacson, he talks about Shannon briefly. And I, I had a vague idea, the transistor information, the name Shannon, but really didn't put it together. But then when I read Ed Thorpe's book, which is called A Man for All Markets, which many in the audience are going to be familiar with because he went, Ed, of course, went on to become a very famous and wealthy investor where he wrote out a valuation model for options. Uh, but before he did that, he, of course, got interested in building this uh, wearable computer with Shannon. And when and in, in Thorpe's book, you get the sense that Ed came across this incredible professor. He comes across as this professor that is willing to drop everything and build a computer and then go do it and actually get to Vegas and play some bets. And I mean, this is someone who can go from the theoretical to the practical and, and it's just part of what made him special. Yeah. It's also, I think, rare, even in his contemporaries, the people that he worked with. So you know, we should also admit part of it is computers at that time had a physical quality, right? Like what we think of as a computer 
it's sort of like if Shannon's living in the age of like kind of the hot rod enthusiast and we're in the age of like a car you can't touch or else you violate the terms of service, right? So Shannon has the benefit of being alive at a time when computers are still physical devices. The first quote unquote computer that he ever really kind of works with closely is called the differential analyzer. And it's this, it's his first education in computing. He graduates from the University of Michigan, finds a a postcard tacked to a bulletin board that has a job kind of servicing the differential differential analyzer at MIT. He ends up at MIT and it's it's a computer made of shafts and gears and pulleys and levers, right? So he's also a bi- he's also a product of the Midwest and the town he grows up in is a town that makes things, right? It's it's known for lumber and for creating things out of lumber. And so there's an element of this that certainly is like nature. There's a part of it that's also nurture. And there's a part of it, I think, that circumstance, the things that he's most interested in also happen to have this physical dimension. But to me, what's interesting about it is that he could have spent his entire life after 1948, just kind of writing papers. He gets a dual chairmanship at MIT, you know, but but he is actually remarkably productive in the in the physical world and is very creative and inventive. And I think we had written about this in the book, but he is one of the people who his work has been published in prestigious journals and his work is also featured in museums because there's a you know there's something physical to it. I can't think of many other thinkers for whom that is true, but I think there's things from that that can apply for all of us. I'm, I am interested in how this stuff applies to all of us. And my question to both of you is, have you changed in some way having spent this time studying and thinking about Shannon and getting to into his mind in some way. Is there ever a time in your day that you go, what would Shannon do? Or you find yourself going down some kind of path, following some kind of curiosity because of of Shannon? Or what's changed, if anything, having spent time with Shannon? I mean, theoretically spent time with Shannon. (laughs) Mark, you want to, you can go first. I do think this emphasis on allowing your curiosity to be unbridled and pursue it is something that I feel very much influenced by. I think you naturally become more cautious as you get older and unless you're, you know, you have the freedom, manifest freedom of somebody like a Shannon. I mean, look, I I have different film projects and sadly, not always thinking of the most commercial projects, but I think I've been motivated by a curiosity and, and you know, an interest. And I definitely feel that I've sort of absorbed something about Shannon in that respect. And also the mechanical thing. I mean, I, I, I actually, when I was smaller, I did like to play with things. I remember taking apart radios and things like that. And I lost it. I became more of a theoretical person. It's interesting. We, my production designer designed that ultimate machine and we brought it back after the production and it wasn't working. And I actually got some joy out of digging into it and, and actually mechanically trying to figure out how to do it and feeling like, okay, this is what Shannon would have done actually. So, I mean, I, I, I just think that's the most important lesson actually. I mean, I have to say also, there was something that I and actually my film crew felt being in that house. It was a strange thing. You know, this was the house and, and that he had been in. And, you know, even as I say, a number of my crew said the same thing that they were just looking around. It was like, for a lot of people, it was like, be in the house where Einstein was. Well, you could feel the presence there and seeing the real things there and being there. It was really inspiring. And that his humbleness 
I think was also something that I think is a is a, an important everyday lesson. I think those are the principal takeaways for me. Yeah, Jimmy, before you go, I just want to point out the humbleness came across in both of your works in the documentary and the book. He never came across as an intellectual bully. He always seemed to make whoever he was talking with feel like his equal. And he was just asking questions and sort of curious. And I, I really appreciated that. And I also want to point out, you said you got the joy out of fixing the ultimate machine. And he says somewhere in your book, Jimmy, I think there's some quotes around the joy he would get from building something and from, from solving a theorem or proving a theorem was something that really motivated him. And he never really lost that. He would always seek that out. And when he felt it, he, he seemed to, to not get tired of it. So I think there's something there, Mark, around really recognizing that joy. Hey, that's, when you come across something in your life where you feel that, not to blow it off. You know, it it's, can be a very important feeling. It's something to follow. But yeah, Jimmy, what do you have to say about, you know, if you've changed at all? It's funny. You, you sort of can't do one of these projects and spend this much time puzzling over someone without walking away with a few things. I would say for me, it was, I have a few takeaways. The first is one of the things that Shannon does in that speech about creative thinking is he talks about constructive dissatisfaction. So the idea of like what we sort of rephrase like being usefully irritated and meaning you see something in the world, you're not happy about it or you don't like it or something seems off about it. There's a few different roads you can go down. You can ignore it. You can you sort of say that somebody else ought to deal with it or it should be somebody else's problem. Or you can kind of be irritated enough that you actually take action to fix it. I find that, and again, I don't want to like lay it on too thick, but I, I'm probably like maybe 5% more likely to do that now, right? Where if something irritates me, I will actually try to sort of seek out an answer or a fix or see if somebody's done a thing, right? And this is like, especially true in the world of writing. If I see something and I'm like, man, there should really be a better version of that, right? I'm going to go out and try to do it or cajole somebody else to do it. And I think there's a couple of other people who have talked about this idea of like what genius is, is just being usefully irritated, which I think is interesting. I mean, I think that's, I think that's really something. You can go back and look at different examples of situations where some of the people who we regard as real innovators and inventors were really just like annoyed, right? Like we're really just quite unhappy with a thing and decided to go out and try to fix it. And I find that to be a really helpful uh, way of reframing something that might bother me or like something that isn't quite right. Like if I approach it from the perspective of, well, maybe there's an opportunity to like go and fix it and see what I can do. That's kind of one big takeaway. The other for me was not to confuse simplicity with being simplistic. And I think that Shannon, you know, people who are in the field who we interviewed would describe his work as like elegant, like it was clean, you know, it was, there was a, a sort of elegance to it. And part of what I think he did well was even a non-engineer or non-information theorist can make heads or tails of the papers that he's written. Things are very simple. They're very plain spoken, but that's not because his ideas are simplistic. And I think there's a tendency to think, well, this thing is simple, ergo, it must be simplistic. But I actually think getting to simple is hard. And there's the sort of that line, right? Like the soul of wit is brevity. 
and I would say like the soul of excellence is simplicity. Like there's something about simplicity that is worth appreciating that Shannon certainly did over and over again, certainly in his published work. But I, I'm like maybe less quick to dismiss simple things as simple-minded or as simplistic. Again, like you don't want to lay it on, I don't want to lay it on too thick, but the idea of somebody getting to the essence of a thing is actually very hard to do. And that is what Shannon spent a lifetime doing was sort of getting to the essence of a thing. It's tough to replicate, but I think worth replicating. I was just going to say, you know, in terms of the simplicity and something, Sean, you were talking about looking at his original paper, the defining diagram is this little box diagram with an information source, a channel, noise is another box, the decoder, and you look at this and, 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 you know, people laud this. This is the fundamental diagram for communication. And you think, are you kidding me? This is like, you know, something that a five-year-old would draw. But it had so much to it, the separation of the source and the noise. And it looks simple and obvious, but that simplicity allowed you to incorporate a lot of things. I mean, it's, a, it's the key to simplicity in so many things. I mean, in, in a lot of physics or math, the world is incredibly complex. And what we look for as scientists or as artists is we look for a simplified version that somehow uh, makes order and is representative of something a lot bigger. And so it's finding, you know, that in my mind is the key is it's finding these simplifications that allow our mind to comprehend it, but actually encompass so much more. And that's what he was really brilliant at doing. So creative dissatisfaction and simplifying these challenging and I, problems. And I would, I would add one more and I like, this is just, it's all, it's, it can, you know, I imagine it's true for a lot of people, but what I always found remarkable about Shannon was actually how we started the conversation, which is that more people don't know about him. And I think part of that is he didn't want to be better known. I imagine that if he were around today, like he'd have a pretty strong allergic reaction to social media, that he wouldn't be out tweeting his discoveries. He had the opportunity to become somebody on the lecture circuit, somebody who's going to go around, give paid talks, somebody who's going to sort of be famous and successful in the conventional sense. And he just turned all of that down. And he was spent all this time in his workshop building interesting things and building machines to beat roulette. And there's a, there's a great story once where there's like a big tree on his property and they're going to have to like cut it down. But instead of having it cut down, I guess he hires some people to carve it into a flagpole. And then at the top, they have a skull carved at the very top. And then they, they have a, a Jolly Roger flag at the top, the skull and crossbones. I mean, and, and this, this, by the way, in lieu of like an invited talk at a prestigious university. And I think, I think prestige can be really dangerous. Bannon sort of understood at some fundamental level, like the desire for fame and prestige can actually distract you from doing things you, you really want to do. There's a real temptation to chase tweets, chase all of these other metrics. And God knows I, I've like succumbed to that myself. But I, I think that with Shannon, it's such an inspiring example because he's the exact opposite. He gets invitations to very pre prestigious things that he has to be forced to do. He's given the Kyoto, one of the inaugural Kyoto Prizes, this hugely prestigious scientific honor, and he has to be cajoled into doing it by his wife and sister because they want to go to Japan. Again and again, that comes up, and I feel like that's actually like so counter to so much of what drives modern life. And, and I think there's something, there's a useful corrective there. 
Now, he seemed very comfortable in his own skin, very comfortable with who he was, not concerned about the views of others, a quiet confidence and humility, yet fierce intellect and the ability to simplify a complex problem. Um, these are all great takeaways, not easy to apply in our lives by any means, but definitely inspiring. Um, Jimmy, where can people find out more about what you're writing about now and what you're doing? Well, maybe true to form with Shannon, you know, I don't actually spend much time on social media. So I have, I have kind of two projects coming up uh, that that are kind of in various stages of of release. The first is partly kind of in the Shannon spirit. I became really interested in this carousel that's on the Brooklyn waterfront called Jane's Carousel. And a few years ago, I reached out to Jane, just dropping her a line and saying, thank you, because I had ridden it so many times. Because uh, when you have a kid, you've got to find things to do. And that was something to do. And I had ridden it so many times and, and read about the history a little bit and just dropped her a line. And kind of one thing led to another. And there's a kind of coffee table book about Jane's carousel. It'll be released in June. That's the history of this carousel. Now, sadly, Jane passed away last year. She was an extraordinary woman. And this carousel, a lot of people don't know, is 100, over 100 years old around 100 years old. Next year's the 100th anniversary. So that's one project. And the next is there's a number of people who constitute a group known as the PayPal Mafia. PayPal was this company that was created, well, depends on you know who's telling the story, but uh, basically 1998, 1999, Elon Musk creates a company called X.com. Peter Thiel and Max Levchin create a company that's first called FieldLink, then called Confinity. And Confinity releases a product called PayPal. That group of people go on to do very, very interesting things. But as I was learning more about that story, I found that no one had really gone back and sort of asked them like, well, what happened? What was in the water back then? And so I spent the last five years kind of just looking in, looking very closely at that story, interviewing the people who are central to it. That book is sort of being completed now. But if you want to learn more about me, go to my Amazon page. <laughs> okay. That's, that sounds like a very Shannon-like project, the carousel, and really fascinating the whole PayPal mafia, I know that's something I'm interested in. And I don't know if there's no definitive book on that. That would be really fascinating. Mark, how about you? What are you working on? How can people find you? How they find me? They can find me through the, uh, the BitPlayer website. So the BitPlayer is the name of the film. And we got it now on Amazon Prime. It's available on CuriosityStream. I'm actually working on a project that has been a passion of mine for years, which is an adaptation of Richard Powers' book uh, called The Goldbug Variations. Richard Powers, I mean, he's a, a brilliant author who has actually been able to straddle the worlds of technology and art and science. He actually has become much more well-known after he won the Pulitzer last year for The, the Overstory. So he wrote the, book, the, the novel The Overstory. And The Goldbug Variations, which is an older novel, tells a story of somebody who in the 50s was sort of working on uh, the problem of how do we actually find the code for DNA? It, there's an odd, actually an interesting odd parallels with Shannon. In fact, Claude Shannon is mentioned in the Goldbug Variations. And the Goldbug Variations is that the title is a play on the Goldbug, which was a short story by Edgar Allan Poe about cryptography and the Bach, um, uh, Goldberg Variations. This is about this period of time when um, this man was on the verge of breaking the code. I mean, people think that Watson and Crick discovered DNA, end of story. No, they did discover the structure of DNA, but then the big question was a coding problem. It was literally a coding problem like, like Shannon would have been interested in. 
which is how these four base nucleotides in combinations of three can code for 20 amino acids because there's actually 64 combinations. So how does that coding work and, and what's the mechanism? The film and story also takes place 25 years later with somebody who is this character and he's obviously not gone on to greatness. And it's about the question of what happened to him. And essentially he gets derailed by love and music and Bach. And so it's about the overlap between art and science, something that uh, we've talked about and, and that I think is something that's been a very big interest of mine is how art and science are not really these completely dislocated fields, that there's fundamental principles of looking for simplicity, looking for patterns, trying to make sense of things, being creative, pursuing things that may seem completely ridiculous. So uh, with a couple partners, we have an option on the novel and I'm trying to make it into a film. That's great. Yeah. Spending some time at the intersection of art and science. I think it's a very fertile place for innovation and creativity and sounds like a fantastic project, Mark. Look forward to hearing more about it. Mark and Jimmy, thank you both. It was a wonderful conversation. Thanks for being on The Good Life. Thank you very much, Sean. Thanks for listening to The Good Life Podcast. If you liked the show, please subscribe, provide a review in Apple or Spotify, and visit our website at seanpmurray.net. Until next time, have a wonderful week.